Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, surging inflation has a growing number of Canadians concerned that they won't be able to stretch their dollars far enough to keep food on the table. Sean Simpson, the VP of Ipsos Public Affairs, joins us to talk about the poll that they did. With an Ontario election just 10 weeks away, has the federal Liberal NDP deal actually benefited Doug Ford? And Ukraine is scarred, wounded, and mourning its dead. But they're far from beaten as it braces for a second month of bombing, casualties, and of course, resistance. What's latest for the Ukraines? Well, we'll talk about that in just a couple of minutes. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, we're getting a little worried about what's going on with our lifestyles in this country, and no kidding, we have every reason to be, I, I suppose. Inflation in Canada has continued its meteoric rise over the last month or so, adding to economic stress. Well, to give you a read on just how desperate and how frustrated we as Canadians are, Ipsos has done a poll on this that uh, paints a rather bleak picture of where we're going and, and what we think is going to happen in the future. Sean Simpson is the VP of Ipsos Public Affairs, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Sean, good morning. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, there's a number of headlines I guess we could jump into, Sean, right off the bat. The first one that jumps out here is about 60% of the people uh, that were in this poll think they might not have enough money to feed their family. Uh, that's that's a, a shocking statement and a shocking statistic. Yeah, it's quite quite startling. Uh, and if we break it down, it's 30% who are very concerned about this, another 30% who are somewhat, so perhaps if things uh, continue to, to get worse uh, in terms of inflation. But there, there's a couple other things that I'll draw your attention to. That 60% yeah. is actually up 16 points. Uh, since the last time we did the poll, which was in in November. So growing concern about uh, ability to feed one's family. And uh, the other uh, startling figure I'll share with you is is that among those with kids in the household, that figure rises to 68%. So two-thirds of parents are saying they're worried about being able to feed their family. I'm looking at some of the bullet points here. Uh, and, and I mean, this is really, as you say, remarkable. One in 10 say they can easily absorb increased costs, rising to about 18%. Well, that's great. That means uh, nine in 10 can't. Right. Uh, I, I mean, we can do this as the glass is half full, but I, I think we're probably coming to the realization here, Sean, according to the numbers that you got from your polling, the Canadians are, are, are pretty fed up with this. They're not very uh, positive about the future. That, that's right. In fact, we've got one quarter uh, who, who say, uh, confess they're already out of money that there is no way that they can pay more for household necessities. So this this 5% inflation, or it seems to be getting closer to 6% now, uh, is uh, is worrisome. That Canadians are saying that they're they're concerned about uh, their their ability to put gas in the car. Uh, some are worried that they uh, uh, might not be able to afford a holiday this summer. And you might say, well, boo-hoo. I mean, that's a, that's a luxury, not a necessity. But you have to remember that last year they probably didn't get a vacation because of COVID. The year before, they probably didn't get a vacation because of COVID. So, you know, the mental health uh, of Canadians deserves a vacation. And now half are saying that they might not be able to afford it. Well, and there is the problem. I mean, you know, we, you know, we've had two years of course, pandemics and, you know, we're shutdowns and not shutdowns, et cetera. And, and every expert tells us that our mental health is, is really being stressed right now. Uh, and if you say, well, you're not even going to get a holiday this year, you can't get that cottage up north for a week or whatever it's going to be. Uh, that just adds to the frustration and adds to, to uh, the angst, I guess, a lot of families are feeling these days. That's right. We're seeing these these feelings even more pronounced among younger Canadians. Younger Canadians were the ones who uh, disproportionately bore the economic burden of the of the pandemic. Uh, working in service industries, they got shut down. They're frontline workers, 
and uh, we're seeing throughout the data they're they're now more concerned about inflation, more concerned that they won't be able to feed their family, more concerned they might not get a vacation, and more concerned that uh, interest rates might actually rise quicker than they can adjust. And I think that's that's really what's happened here is that we went from sort of a period of two to two and a half percent our target to five, you know, almost overnight. And and Canadians know that the low interest rate environment can continue, but they didn't think that that you know inflation was going to rise so far so quickly that they that they wouldn't be able to adjust. Well, and the gasoline aspect of this is pretty interesting too, because that's something that really hits us in the pocketbook. You know, that's that's after tax dollars that we have to go fill up the car. Most of us don't drive electronic electric vehicles yet, uh, and sixty eight percent said they might not be able to afford gasoline. Now, now everybody complains about this. I complain about this, but yeah. you, you can pretty much divide the complainers, and I think that's pretty much all of us into two groups: <laughs> those that don't want to pay the extra, and those that just can't. Pay it because it's just yeah. it's not there for them, and that number is at sixty eight percent right now. That's frightening. Uh, that, that's right. And uh, the thing about gasoline is is it, it's a sort of a near constant reminder because every day when you're out, you turn the car on, you're like, oh god, can I afford to you know drive across town to get this thing that I need? Uh, or, or even just when you're driving, you know, almost every major intersection has a gas station, and so you remind you look up and you see the price constantly. Um, you know, Canadians might have been able to, you know, to, to bear uh, a rising interest rate environment on its own. They might have been able to bear the pandemic on its own. They might even be able to uh, bear the Ukrainian situation, the impact it's having on our economy alone. But all, all of these things together have created sort of a miserable situation here, uh, which is inflation and high interest rates. Uh, and uh, Canadians are, are really feeling the pinch as a result. You know, I think what probably exacerbates this situation uh because of the data that, that you guys have presented here, is I don't know, and off the top of my head, really, Sean, I don't remember too many of our economic experts over the last couple of years predicting something like this. You know, the, the story we got from a lot of them was, look, at you know, this this is terrible, but you know what? When the pandemic is over and, and doors open again, we've got all of this disposable income now. We're going to spend our money. Uh, stores are going to get their bottom lines back under control, and everything's going to be okay uh, nobody talked about inflation rates like this. Nobody talked about the skyrocketing price of gasoline and, and other household items right now. So this this kind of came out of the blue for an awful lot of us, didn't it? Well, there, there appears to be a fairly significant disconnect between what economists measure in a macroeconomic sense uh, and what Canadians experience and what we measure in a microeconomic sense. So you can say that you know, jobless rate is low and the economy is growing at two or three percent. And, you know, all of it, people have money in the bank because they weren't spending the pandemic. But when when the when we see the rubber hits the road, the reality on the street is that Canadians are worried because the future is so uncertain. And now they're being hit uh, in their pocketbooks where they where they feel it most. And, and that's the reaction I'm hearing an awful lot uh, as we cover a lot of these topics on the program. Uh, and and what you've just mentioned is true. You know, you look at the uh, the unemployment rate. Uh, you look at uh, a number of the other economic factors, and and there are some positive signs there. But time and time again, I'm hearing from people. Well, I'm not seeing it. It's it's not helping my situation at all. Uh, and and I think that's reflected in the numbers you guys have. Yeah, and and the, the pandemic has really been about a K shaped recovery, meaning that those people with homes, uh, those people with investments, uh, those people who are making you know more than more than uh, the average, 
they've had a different experience because you're right. They have saved some money and they're, they're, the markets have done fairly well over the last two years. And, and, and as a result, they've done well. But then there's this sort of bottom third of the, of the population who has really struggled throughout the pandemic because they lost their job, for example. They don't have investment. If you're a renter, you know, those prices are going up. If you're trying to buy a home for the first time, good luck. Those prices have gone up, too. So, um, you know, there's this sort of tale of two realities that the K-shaped uh, uh, recovery has uh, has has brought to Canada, and uh, you know, guess which part of the K all of our politicians are in. Uh, you know, so they, they, they may not be feeling uh, what sort of the the bottom leg of the K is feeling. Absolutely not. And and as I say, I mean, this was unexpected. Especially because, I mean, I, I can remember with the second lockdown, I tend to lose track of all the lockdowns as we've gone off through this. Uh, but the Bank of Canada reassured us, we're not going to touch interest rates, don't worry. Uh, we got to give everybody a chance to get back on their feet. Well, then inflation started to go up, cost of living started to go up, and the Bank of Canada was, to use their term, forced into something like this. So it, it's just, this is kind of a perfect storm of the worst things that could happen here. And you're right, the bottom people, the ones at the bottom part of that care, the ones that are actually feeling the most. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, we see through the data that uh, those who are earning less than 40000 a year uh, as a household are, in fact, the most likely to be concerned that they won't have enough to feed their family, the most likely to say that they can't afford gasoline, the most likely to say that they, they fear that interest rates will, will rise quicker than they can adjust. So, uh, you know, our politicians would do well to, to pay attention to, to, to these people because it is not an insignificant chunk of the population. Well, absolutely. And, and we understand, you know, that this is, this is not just a Canada problem. I, there's a global situation going on here. I know the, there's a lot of angst in the States and the UK and all over the place because of the pandemic and the economic impact this has had. But I'm hearing from more and more Canadians, I don't care. I'm worried about my own family right now. You know, I, you know, God bless the people in London or in, in, in New York City or something, but I'm worried about right here. You know, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to pay the mortgage? You know, how am I going to pay for the utilities? Those are the questions they're asking right now. That's right. And uh, they'll be looking to the federal government, no doubt, for some relief uh, in, in the budget. Uh, I think the province of Quebec has already sent out some uh, or plan to send out some direct payments to, to yep. lower income uh, citizens uh, to help them uh, weather the storm. Yeah, I think it was five hundred dollars uh, for for the. I guess you have to qualify for it, but you know they're they're sending checks out right now. This is, is going to put an awful lot of pressure on the government, though, isn't it, Sean? When you look at, at the problems and the uh, the attitude of Canadians right now, uh, you know they they've signed this deal off with the NDP and they've talked about the agenda that they want to try to move forward on, uh, which is all well and good. Uh, but uh, I think what's happening here, and I think what's reflected in the numbers that you guys found from Ipsos, is Canadians are looking for relief now. Uh, not down the road. You know, they don't care what's going to happen two or three years from now. What's going to happen at the end of this month? Yeah, generally, uh, expectations about the, the economy are more positive the, the further out you look. Uh, and you're right. It, it's right now that Canadians uh, are, are needing relief. So uh, the leaders better uh, get to it uh, and uh, and figure out how they're going to help uh, Canadians get through it. Here in, in Ontario, uh, actually, where I am, um, the uh, the government announced that they were going to uh, discontinue fees on license plate registration as a way of giving back. Of course, that only gives back to people who own a car. Uh, so it doesn't really help the lowest uh, income bracket, but uh, perhaps it's a step uh, in the right direction. 
Yeah, but if you can't afford ga- gas for the car and it's going to sit in the driveway, you don't want to have to pay for a sticker too. So I guess that might be the, that's the glasses have full attitude, I suppose. In that's this, right. uh, pretty bleak times, but it, it's always great to to actually uh, get a, a clearer picture, and that's what you guys certainly do at Ipsos with these uh, these numbers that you've shown us. Uh, thanks so much, Sean, for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care. Sean Simpson, who's the vice president of Ipsos Public Affairs Canada. And uh, it, it is pretty rough. And, and I get that. I mean, and there are some people that we've talked to here uh, that are suggesting that, yeah, it sucks. But, you know, we can make we can make do. We, we can do some adjustments. And, and God bless them if you're in that situation. But for the majority of Canadians right now, uh, they're just saying, look, at this is this is just too much. I mean, we're we're swimming in red ink right now. And they are legitimately saying we can't afford the bills. We're going to do a segment later on on the show uh, about uh, some other polling that was done that basically said that especially young Canadians, those are Canadians basically under age 35, are, have given up on the uh, the dream of owning a home. They just It's impossible. Who's ever going to be able to do that? And that's a pretty bleak statistic to look at, too. We're going to give you some details on that a little bit later on. But to, to go back to the point we just mentioned with Sean Simpson from Ipsos, though, there is immense pressure on this government now to try to do something about this. And, you know, there, I, I know that there are some political parties that say, well, you know, lower taxes will solve it. No, no, they need relief now. Uh, and I know there's an awful lot of other things that they talked about yesterday, about, uh, you know, the daycare program, of course, and, and health care improvements and things of this nature. And those are still important to Canadians. But, you know, when you're not sure you can pay the bills, when you're not sure you have enough money in your checking account right now uh, for the mortgage payment to come out, that's a pretty bleak picture. And uh, this government uh, here in Ontario, the federal government, and every provincial government, I guess, at this stage, uh, is going to have to come up with something. As we mentioned, the uh, Quebec government announced yesterday with their budget projections uh, that they're going to offer that $500 payment to a number of uh, Quebecois uh, who are going to be in dire circumstances. And, and that's a start, I suppose. And uh, you know, we, I know New Brunswick is looking at their books right now, too, because they're about to do their provincial budget. But uh, you got to figure, and uh, we know, by the way, that uh, there will be a federal budget and an Ontario budget coming up pretty soon, we, especially since there's going to be an election here in Ontario uh, in June. These guys are probably, you know, they just pull out the budget documents and say, okay, let's uh, change this a little bit and change this a little bit and start addressing some of these needs right now because uh, Canadians are looking for that kind of help from governments. And it, I suppose it's adding to the frustration that, uh, you know, uh, there are still some people in Ottawa that are, you know, just taking these opportunities, these bleak times, you know, to start firing off, you know, political hyperbole about a number of different things, as opposed to actually bearing down and saying, "Okay, we got to work together to do something like this," and and that's what the the message I mentioned in my commentary this morning that I'm hearing from Canadians, you know, get over this other stuff about you know trying to defeat the government and let's have another election. Canadians don't want that. They voted, and the message that they sent to every MP in Ottawa right now of any political stripe is, "We voted how we voted." We sent a message. We don't think any of you deserve a majority government. So get over it and get to work. And boy, you've got a lot of work to do based on these numbers. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Prime Minister is uh, among many world leaders in Brussels right now to uh, talk about what's going to be happening with Ukraine. The G7 is there and uh, the PM also is going to be addressing the uh, European Union a little bit later on. Global's chief political correspondent, David Aiken, gives us a rundown on the uh, the Prime Minister's trip over the next few days. 
On Thursday, uh, Trudeau heads to a NATO heads of government summit, again in Brussels. Uh, there, uh, NATO unity, NATO consensus will be an issue. Some NATO members want to move a little quicker uh, on Russian aggression. Uh, Poland, for example, would like to see a peacekeeping force on the ground in Ukraine. Lithuania would like to see a no-fly zone. Canada and other NATO leaders aren't there yet, but there will be some talks about next steps for NATO. After the NATO meeting, Trudeau joins other G7 leaders uh, for a discussion on the G7 agenda, the global economy, how to respond to China. And then once that's done on Friday, uh, the Prime Minister hops back in his plane, heads back here to the national capital. David Aiken, Global News, Ottawa. So let's talk about the Canadian uh, participation in this. And uh, to do so, we're pleased to welcome to the program Nomi Claire Lazar, who is a full professor in public and international affairs at the University of Ottawa. She's also the author of the uh, the book States of Emergency in Liberal Democracies. Uh, Professor, pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for the invitation. How much pressure is there going to be on on the Prime Minister, uh, and I guess other leaders too, but we'll look at it from this perspective, uh, about stepping up now in this meeting in Brussels? Uh, You know, we've been talking about perhaps increased military spending, uh, and that may be in question now, after, you know, given the political reality of what happened with the Liberals and NDP yesterday. Uh, but, you know, there was a commitment from, uh, from, of course, Minister Jolie to try to do something about this. The military actions here seem to be front and center with some of these NATO members, including Poland, as we just heard from David Aiken. Is Canada there yet? Are they ready to reassess the NATO approach to this? Well, I think Canada is going to have to uh, reassess our commitment to NATO. Uh, You you asked at at the start, how much pressure is there on Trudeau? So there are a lot of different sources of pressure. Uh, Domestically, there are two big sources. And the first is that, of course, Canada has the uh, largest Ukrainian uh, uh, community outside of Ukraine itself and Russia. And so there's pressure from from that constituency. Then uh, Zelensky, of course, has been brilliant in, uh, in, in drumming up broader support from the public and so so he's got a you know a tremendous amount of goodwill and and public support and has sort of set himself up as this moral hero uh, and in his speech for example to parliament uh, you know no kind of put pressure on on uh, our parliament through public pressure uh, by by basically saying you know shame on you if you don't help me so we have those two domestic sources of pressure on Trudeau uh, to step up and do more and then there's going to be this other source of pressure, which is from uh, other NATO countries, because of course Canada does not meet uh, NATO targets, uh, and our, our, that failure has, is a long-standing failure, and that may have to change now. But it will be difficult to change, partly because we we have big issues with military procurement in this country, and also with military recruitment. Uh, and so, certainly for the for the next little while, it will be difficult for Canada to do more militarily. And you know, you pointed out as well that with this agreement between the Liberals and the NDP, that's going to make things a little more tricky on the ground as well. The political realities are one thing, but you're right, the military realities here don't paint a very optimistic picture. I mean, even if Canada wanted to do more, uh, we don't really have the tools militarily, do we, Professor? I mean, you know, we we have aging aircraft. We've been dilly-dallying about buying new ones for about 10 years now, and they still haven't made a decision on that. Uh, but they're not going to get delivered by the weekend. I mean, you know, even if they do make a decision, so we don't have a whole lot to offer here. I mean, there are armaments that, that I suppose are in the arsenal that they can do. But I think the the implied message from Zelensky uh, in all the speeches he made to the UK, to the Canadian parliaments, and, and certainly uh, to the joint session in Washington was, thanks for everything you're doing, but it's not enough. Uh, he's, and he's looking for military solutions here. 
Yeah. And I, I do think that that's partly strategically or strategic on, on his part. So he knows that there is little to no chance that uh, he's going to get his no fly zone. But by making that the ask, he and, and also sort of joining that with this sort of shame rhetoric, uh, he he makes he puts an enormous pressure on uh, on the world community to give him everything else he asks for it or as much as as we possibly can. I do think that Canada is largely or, or you know close to tapped out in terms of military support. And so that means that Trudeau is going to have to you know continue promising other things in the short term, such as humanitarian aid, uh, more sanctions, although even there there's not a lot of room left, as well as, assistance to resettle Ukrainian refugees. But whether that's, you know, how that's going to go over in Europe is another question, because again, you know, for years, Canada has not met its obligations to NATO. And I think uh, that uh, public opinion in Canada is likely to change along those lines, too. So we've tended to think that low military spending, you know, might be a good thing. Um, but at this point, you know, everyone is beginning to reassess, you know, what are our obligations in terms of the uh, 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 eastern edge of NATO and what what kind of defense considerations we might have to uh, rethink domestically as well. Uh, so so I, I would expect that the, the, the dialogue and debate around military spending in Canada is going to shift dramatically uh, and that that will happen within the context of this agreement with the NDP. So that should be interesting to watch. Absolutely, it will. And you're right. I mean, when Zelensky made these these uh, pleas to, we, he wasn't just talking to the politicians, he was talking to the people of those countries. Uh, and, and I think he, you're right, he drummed up an awful lot of empathy. He put a face on what was going on. You know, it's not a statistic. These are human lives that we're talking about. And, and that resonated, I think, with Canadians. So there's, you're, I think you're right. A lot of the pressure for the Canadian government to respond in a much more aggressive fashion here is going to come from home, not just from uh, other NATO members. There was another a couple of different places now where they're speculating. And I think Poland was the latest one on this one, Professor, that said there should be some sort of a peacekeeping force, so whether it's from NATO or from the United Nations. I don't know. But there has to be a peace before there's a peacekeeping force, doesn't there? While I'm not a military expert, it, it does sound that way to me, and it seems like a peacekeeping force uh, would be would be kind of dangerous at at this stage, just in terms of the possibility of of a mistake that uh, that could could uh, lead into full out war between uh, NATO and and Russia. So that again, you know, uh, I. I, I think that that often people ask for more than they know they're going to get. And, you know, like a, as, as Machiavelli says, like a prudent archer, you aim high and hope to, to hit your target. So my guess is uh, that Poland knows very well that's not going to happen. But by asking too much, hopes that we will, that uh, NATO will do more to, to, to police that border uh, with, and uh, bolster support uh, as, we, as we look to what might happen next. We're not sure. He, as we mentioned at the top of our conversation, he's going to be speaking to uh, to the European Union uh, today. And and in past speeches when he's been over in Europe, as you know, Professor, he's he's basically worked on the theme, you know, NATO members on both sides of the ocean have to, I think the phrase was, uh, work together to defend democracy in the face of authoritarianism. But uh, there's been some pushback from some of the other NATO countries that say, look, it's it's a great speech and it's a, it's very aspirational. But what's the game plan? And, and, and is that going to be the, the understated message here for these NATO members to say, what are you doing going forward? We don't need platitudes right now. As you know, President Zelensky said, I don't need a ride. I need weapons. I, I think that's exactly 
so what, what we can expect is that Trudeau will reiterate those things, those value statements. And we shouldn't see those as empty window dressing. Window dressing is important. It's, it, you know, the sort of pleasantries the, and, uh, you know, the deeper value statements, et cetera, are important in making sure that everyone is sort of is on board with the reason why we're doing this military, the military stuff. But I do think that, and, and so that's what we can expect to see, I think, in the speech to the European Parliament today, which is, you know, mostly ceremonial. But leading into the NATO meeting, I would expect to see uh, some a little more hardball and demands on, on the Prime Minister, on Canada to step up and meet those NATO targets. Is, is NATO a stronger force, not, not just because of Ukraine, but uh, because of the the, the the changing chemistry, I guess. I mean, when, you know, when Donald Trump was the president, first he didn't he didn't like NATO, and seemed to side with Vladimir Putin about maybe destroying it. He's gone. Biden is there. Uh, Angela Merkel, who was probably the de facto leader during the Trump administration of NATO, anyway, is also gone. Uh, are they stronger and more united? And and has the U.S. resumed its role as as the driving force in that group? There, I think there's no doubt that that this has been, uh, uh, you know hugely important for the rejuvenation of, of NATO and also for, for a sense of shared mission among its member states. I'm not sure how it's going to play out in terms of the U.S. resuming its uh, it, it, a leadership role. I do think that that Europe will continue to be the major, uh, uh, will continue to be the, the leader in that respect, although we'll, we'll see, I mean, Germany is kind of a bit compromised because, of course, all of these sanctions that we're uh, that have been placed on Russia are dependent on Europe weaning itself off Russian energy. So we we uh, we can have all the sanctions we want, but Russia is still getting a lot of hard currency coming in because Europe and particularly Germany are importing uh, Russian energy, and so that's going to at least for this for the immediate future that's going to compromise some uh, in terms of moral leadership some of the NATO countries in this round of discussion. But going forward, I, I, I do wonder whether Europe is going to be a greater force than the United States, uh, in part because of the dissension within the United States, and in part because Europe, of course, has a much, much more immediate vested interest in uh, in what's going on uh, at the moment. The other player here, of course, is China that we haven't yeah. uh, mentioned. Uh, and I, I think a great deal in the progress of this war is going to depend on what China does or doesn't do. You're absolutely right. There's a very pivotal meeting going on over the next couple of days in, in Brussels. Uh, Professor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you very much for your perspective on this. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for the invitation. Have a good day. You too. Uh, Professor Nomi Claire Lazar from the uh, University of Ottawa. Let me do a quick break. We're going to come back in a couple of minutes as we continue. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was yesterday morning on this very program that you heard the uh, the Prime Minister uh, talk about the uh, the deal that he has struck, uh, the Liberals, that and the NDP, of course, the agreement that will see the New Democrats support uh, his minority government through 2025. Uh, Prime Minister says the deal is a confidence and supply agreement, which generally involves an opposition party agreeing to support the government on things like confidence motions and budget bills. Here's what the Prime Minister had to say. With so much instability around us, Canadians need stability. We're different political parties. We stand for different things. But where we have common goals, we cannot let our differences stand in the way of delivering what Canadians deserve. And to the surprise of nobody, of course, the opposition parties, uh, well, specifically the Conservatives, uh, condemned this thing, uh, saying it was a, a, a 
terrible thing. It was a, you know, a punch in the gut to democracy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But are there some advantages to this? Maybe some unforeseen advantages to this. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Wayne Petrosi, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. Uh, professor, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Let me ask you right up front if I could, Wayne. I, I had a discussion with uh, Alex Boudelier, our, our colleague from Global News up in Ottawa yesterday. And uh, he said, notwithstanding what Candace Bergen and Pierre Polyev and others are saying, he said this could, this could actually help the Conservatives uh, because uh, whoever they select, of course, as their new leader later on this year, they're going to have more time to actually get Canadian people to know them, to, as opposed to the rather short chain of both Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole had. Uh, it's, it's not something that you know, the Conservatives are going to admit to. Uh, but are there people that could actually benefit from this? Well, you know, it, one has and certainly the extended uh, time period for the new leader to acclimatize him or herself to put together their own team within the caucus and to prep for uh, the the next election. That's always going to be a benefit. What what I think uh, is though we need to keep our eye on is that this deal signals, I, I think, a recognition by by the two parties, that we're in the midst or middle phases of, a, I think, a realignment of voters you know, across the country. And they, I think they decided that it would be wise to buy some time to get a sense of the new lay of the land uh, rather than rush, end up rushing headlong into a, a minority government defeat, a new election, and basically parties fighting on the basis of the past instead of what is currently true on the ground. That's an interesting theory, and, and I, I can see exactly where you're coming from on this. Uh, you know, for instance, you, you heard some of the criticisms from, from the Conservatives yesterday, uh, but is this the, the beginning, or maybe not even the beginning, but you know, of, of this new movement that, uh, you know what, we want these dental care programs, we like this idea about you know, daycare, national to get things of this nature. Yeah, we know it's going to cost a lot of money. It's almost like adopting the, the mindset that a lot of, of uh, Scandinavian countries have these days. So you've got those two parties at that end. And the Conservatives, as you mentioned, are still clinging to the old idea about, well, it's all about, uh, you know, tax breaks and, you know, reducing spending, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and uh, it doesn't seem to be resonating with people. It seems as if the, the, the gap between those two is getting wider in this country. You know, it certainly is. And, you know, and I think that takes us to, to Premier Ford. Yeah. Because he's parted ways in some significant ways with his federal cousins in terms of how he sees the electorate, at least his instincts guide him in, in, in a rather different direction. And, you know, that's, that's probably the clearest example, the people that uh, Mr. Ford has declined to support for uh, re-election within his own caucus, uh, a number of them have gravitated towards the federal conservatives in that wing of the conservatives represented by Candace Bergen and Pierre Polifair. And I, I think Mr. Ford... That that for him, that's not where he thinks the Conservative Party should be going, and so he was more than happy to jettison them. I think he's more than happy that they are gravitating to the federal level, and won't represent any kind of silliness in the in the upcoming provincial campaign. And and I can see that happening. There's a, a benefit here. I mean, and nobody's suggesting for a minute that, that, that Doug Ford's moving toward the middle, but he's he's is he's inching the party a little bit that way, as you say his. His, uh, his devotion all of a sudden towards uh, EVs and, and that sort of thing. Uh, certainly not the Doug Ford that we saw four years ago. And I, I, he's reading the tea leaves here. 
and and trying to you know catch uh, I think the idea of what voters are these days. And he's got a working relationship with with Justin Trudeau, doesn't he? I mean, he's still critical of him, but from a, when it, he thinks it's necessary. But they you know they'll answer each other's phone calls, and you know they they work mutually on a, a number of different initiatives, and that's got to bode well for Doug Ford, I think too. No, it you know it certainly does. I, I think he's he recognized, you know, probably in the second year of, of his term that he was heading down a cul-de-sac that wasn't going to take him anywhere. There, there he wanted to stay in the long run, and he had to reorient. And part of that reorienting meant uh, coming to terms with some of the things changes that are happening on the ground. Uh, Ontario citizens, just like citizens across this country, the pandemic really revealed. And, expo- and intensified a degree of uneasiness, of uncertainty, of anxiety that really wasn't there before. And it, it, the intensification of that anxiety meant that people were keen to look for some sense of stability. People were, were much more critical eye towards political, towards governments in terms of what are they doing for us and who are they acting for. And, you know, Mr. Ford, I think, recognized that and, and, and came around. I, I think the, the, the national liberal government recognized it. I think the two party leaders at the federal level who made this accord also recognized it. And so we got to address that insecurity, that sense of instability. Who wants to fight an election when you're not even certain of who your core supporters are anymore because there's been so much change whipping around the environment? Exactly. Uh, the changing winds here in Ottawa and maybe even at Queen's Park, too. And we're not talking about politically, we're talking about philosophically. Professor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for sharing some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Take care. Take care. Professor Wayne Petrosi from Ryerson University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have tried to keep you up to speed on this program about what's happening with Ukraine. Earlier in this uh, session of the program, we talked about uh, the fact that NATO leaders are meeting in Brussels. Uh, right now to try to, uh, I guess, reestablish their their priorities uh, when it comes to how they're going to respond to uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And with that going on, of course, uh, there's the concern about uh, various stuff that that I think most of us are aware of now, the no-fly zone that uh, President Zelensky is still asking for. Uh, He's addressing the uh, the French Parliament right now, as a matter of fact, in earlier addresses, of course, to the UK Parliament, uh, the European Union, uh, the Canadian Parliament, and of course, the Joint Session of Congress in Washington a few days ago, too. But while this is all going on at the diplomatic level, uh, the, the, the war on the ground continues. Uh, Ukrainian authorities had said uh, that Russia now has seized 15 rescue workers. Rescue workers, we're not talking about soldiers, but rescue workers who were heading to Maripol uh, desperately needed food and supplies. Karen Chamas has details. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky accused Russian forces of blocking the aid convoy despite agreeing to the route ahead of time. Many Mariupol residents tried to escape the city amid the bombing and gun battles as the attempts at a humanitarian corridor continued to collapse. Meanwhile, the battle for Ukraine's cities was focused around its suburbs. The Ukrainian military says it forced Russian troops out of a strategically important Kyiv suburb. Russian forces took partial control of three northwest areas where there has been fighting for weeks. I'm Karen Chamas. Joining us to talk about uh, what's going on on the ground is somebody who's been there for the last little while. Brian J. Karam is a political commentator for CNN, of course a columnist for Salon.com and The Washington Diplomat. He's host of the podcast, Just Ask the Question, and author of, uh, I think, believe it's his seventh book, 
uh, called Free the Press, which is a great read. It's available in fine bookstores everywhere, or you can order it online like I did. Uh, and he joins us, uh, I believe, from Poland today. Brian, thank you so much for jumping in here and uh, spending some time with us again today. Sure. Glad to be with you. I, I saw your segment uh, late last week, Brian, with uh, Nicole Wallace on MSNBC. Uh, I don't think you'd even unpack your bags uh, when when you, you were talking to her, but <laughs> you did make a point that I thought was very relevant to this. Uh, you, in all your years in journalism, have covered a lot of these places in the Middle East. I mean, war zones, conflict zones, whatever. Contrast that or compare that with what you saw uh, when you landed in Ukraine last week and what you're seeing since then. Well, what I've seen since then, what I what I saw there was just uh, there's a, a there's a strain on the on the Ukraines, and they are the Ukrainians are very tense. There are um, Russians are targeting civilians more than they're targeting military targets, which you just reported on. So it's reporters, it's relief workers. It, it's uh, people bringing uh, food and clothing to those who are under siege. Those people are being targeted. It is If you want to define war crime, this is it. And still, despite all that, the Ukrainians are upbeat, confident, um, and often say very disparaging things about Putin that I won't say on a public radio <laughs> airway. But they have yeah, maintained I, I, their... Uh, <laughs> you, you heard them. <laughs> I, I will direct but, uh, our listeners to... to uh, no, I'm sorry, go ahead. They have maintained... Yeah, I'm just going to say, I'm going gonna to direct them to the, uh, to the your, your reporting Yeah, from yesterday. It was, it was uh, published in Salon.com. Uh, the article is called Report from Ukraine. Life goes on and spirits remain high. Putin wasn't counting on that. And, and your reference to the to the language that we're not going to use on this show is uh, uh, some of the comments from the from the everyday people that you've talked to in Ukraine. It, it, it gets a little salty, but it kind of gives you a, a pretty good idea of their attitude right now. Yeah, their attitude is uh, very resilient. That's a word I would use to describe most of them that I've seen. A grace under pressure, uh, another term that I would use. The one thing I can say on a on the public airwaves is I, I ran into a farmer about 40 miles southwest uh, who lives about 40 miles southwest of Kiev, and he said, I, I hear you Americans have a lot of guns. Bring them here and we will kill lots of Russian bears. And that's the kind of attitude they have. They are just salty. A couple of lines I want to read from the piece that, uh, that you wrote for a salon that was published, as I say, yesterday on the 22nd. And and I think it gives an interesting perspective. Uh, I've spent some time there as, as you looked out there. And it just you, you'll be familiar with this. Uh, sitting at lunch on the seventh floor of the hotel in Lviv this week, I saw this vast panorama of the city spread out before me. Putin might have the military might to level this country, but he can't conquer it and he could never occupy it. Uh, it's a fascinating perspective from a, a, a people that have just been laid to waste, uh, but they are, as you mentioned, more than resilient, and they, they want to keep fighting. And uh, Putin has made a huge miscalculation here, hasn't he? I think so. I was on, I was sitting in a uh, press conference yesterday with uh, mayors from Ukraine and mayors from cities all over Europe who were vowing support. There was a guy with a very heavy, thick Irish brogue from Dublin who, you know, is anything you need, brother. And they look at the Ukrainian profile is going to rise from this, and the Russian profile is going to fall from this. And this is all because of Putin. It was an unnecessary war. It's an unnecessary uh, thing that's going on. It's unnecessary carnage, and the loss of life is horrific. And the war crimes are horrific. And yet you look at the Ukrainians, and you're here in Lviv, and these people are going on about their life. Um, those that are being targeted are being careful, and uh, it's very dangerous. It's a war situation. 
But at the same time, they have been determined not. And that's what kills me. I don't if Putin didn't see this coming, he's not the uh, the brilliant strategical mind that everyone thought he was. He's being exposed as the bully that he is. He also talked about one uh, conversation you had with one of the uh, Ukraine women uh, who was, I guess, pretty disenchanted and clearly disenchanted with Putin, who said these they were supposed to be our neighbors, our friends. Uh, so there's some shock, and I get, notwithstanding the resilience that you talked about, Brian, there's still a lot of anger there, isn't there? Uh, of course there's anger. If your next-door neighbor who's supposed to be your friend decides to take over your, your house, I think you'd be very angry, and that's the way they feel. And um, it even goes back farther than that. I mean, Kiev was there before Moscow. It, those in Ukraine look at themselves as the original and the true uh, Russians, and they look at uh, those who live in Russia as Muscovites. And it, it, to them, it's almost like having your child come back and, and beat you up. That's what angers them most. I know one of the conversations, I know you've attended a number of these press conferences with the the Ministry of Communities and, and Territories Development. Uh, there's an interesting, and it's a, a theory I've heard before, but I've heard not just Zelensky, but other folks in his cabinet saying the same thing, that you need to stop us now uh, because at some point you're going to have to stop this. Uh, denouncing the Russian invasion is a plague which will spread across the world if nothing is done. It, it brought back memories, Brian, as you were reporting that, of, well, the domino theory, uh, which was used as some justification for the United States getting involved in Vietnam way back when, that if you don't stop the communist aggression now, we're going to have to do it later on, and it might be too late. Is that message resonating with the well, with the Americans? Yeah, because that reson- it resonates because it's not a message about Vietnam. It's a, a message that resonates because it reminds people of World War II, and how Hitler went into Poland, claiming that they were just going after territory that they previously owned. And everyone here understands that what Putin is trying to do is to reassemble the Soviet Union. And that's got people frightened, and justifiably so. And it's uh, the, the biggest frustration they have in Ukraine is that there's no... They want to put planes in the air to try and establish some air superiority over Russia, and uh, we won't do it. We won't establish a no-fly zone. So they're asking for lend-lease, like in World War II, and volunteer pilots to do the job. And that may be where it goes. That may it's, We will see, because Biden is on his way to Warsaw. He's in Brussels today. He will be in uh, Warsaw by the end of the week. And I'm sure that that situation will be discussed. He'll probably show up at the same place we did in the train stations to see some of these refugees. It's an ongoing problem. It's the thing that they think the West hasn't done the most. And it's the thing that is has carries with it the greatest consequences. Because one misstep, and we're right in the middle of a conflagration. I don't know how it ends, but I only know the next war will, will be with sticks and stones if we're able to do it at all. So you have to, you have to move lightly, move decisively, and make the right steps. And so far, the Biden administration has done that, but we'll see where it goes from here. What about that line in the sand, Brian, that you talked about and you've written about uh, since you've been over there? Uh, Biden has been, you know, very steadfast in that, look, at, we, we can't put boots on the ground. We're not crossing the border. We'll give them all the support we can, but, you know, we're not going to get the no-fly zone. Is, is he wavering on that? Because, I mean, he's also talked about, well, some of the annihilation no, that you've written about, of that. course. No, he won't it, waver on a no-fly zone. What 
they may negotiate is trading um, airplanes, doing land lease, so that uh, volunteer pilots can take to the skies and defend it. But there is no way that American pilots, active military from the United States, will be involved with either uh, American planes or active military American pilots. If it's going to be done, it would have to be done on a volunteer basis with uh, people from Europe manning the planes and them buying planes uh, from either us or a third source. So it, there's a lot of light-stepping, as I said, going on, because the line in the sand is already drawn. He's, Putin has already crossed that. I mean, as they said yesterday in, in this press conference, these are European people with European values, and Putin has stepped all over that. So the real challenge is how do you – there's only – this doesn't end well for Russia. It, it can't end well for Russia. And so it's how do they extricate themselves, and Putin's got to be worried about how he extricates himself and still holds on to his, his job, <laughs> to be honest. And that's – so it's a, it, it, it's a very complicated issue. And the line in the sand isn't that, you know, boots in Poland and it's all over with and NATO and, uh, and the allies come in. And that's that's for real World War Three. But the world is involved now in this effort. The world now is uh, helping with humanitarian aid, volunteers. There are people volunteering to fight with the Ukrainians. This is a world united effort, but it has to be carefully managed or it's going to be far worse than it is now. You've been in, uh, in Poland for a little while now, of course, uh, and, and they've been very a- adamant about this. I mean, you, you may remember when night. Zelensky was talking about the no-fly zone, uh, it was the Poles that simply said, look, it, we'll give you our planes because you guys can fly those, but we need the Americans to reimburse us by sending stuff over here. That seemed to get shoved to the side. Is, is that still a, a viable option? That remains to be seen. When Biden gets here, what will be on the table and how will it be dealt with is what uh, I'm sure will be discussed when Biden shows up here. He's meeting um, with his counterparts in Poland Friday and Saturday, so we'll see. Uh, what's the sense that in Poland now? Is there, I mean, they're right there. They're watching it, uh, you know, right across the border. Uh, it's a supply change, and is, is there an attitude there that if it doesn't stop here that, that we could be next? I know that's a NATO country, but uh, there's no telling what Putin's going to do next. Is, is there a sense of urgency in Poland right now that this has to be stopped right here? Oh, yeah. And the, and the overwhelming feeling in Poland is it's nervous, it's anxious, and there are posters all over the walls here saying, you know, Russian warship, go bleep yourself. You know, uh, Putin uh, is, a, you know, and we won't repeat those words, but I mean, <laughs> the sentiments that are in Ukraine are in Poland and all across Europe. This is a, a united effort, and it's frightening because it's, uh, for many, as the as the mayor of Kiev said on during the press conference, uh, if you don't think you're affected by this, then you're wrong. This involves everyone, and it does. Well, the, the meeting in Brussels is going to be a key element to this. And what I've always liked about your writing, Brian, is you, you bring it right home. And, and you know the, the stuff that you did in the uh, Salon.com article, I think, really sends a message here that you know that you would not be able to to ascertain on a thirty second uh, clip on a, on a newscast. Uh, you got to live it. You got to be there, and and that's I know why you're there. I mean, you've mentioned that with your interview with Nicole last week that it's it's where you need to be, and uh, your reporting on it has been stellar as always. Uh, we'll direct people to uh, Salon.com, by the way, and the other articles that you'll be publishing, of course, will be on there for the next little while. Uh, stay safe, my friend. Uh, it's 
this is a pivotal time in the world, as you mentioned in your article. And uh, we're glad we've got people like you there that to report on exactly what's happening. Thank you so much for this, Brian. Oh, thank you. Anytime, man. It's always a pleasure. Take care. Brian J. Karam, political commentator uh, for CNN and Salon.com, which is uh, where you can go uh, to read Brian's writing and reporting on what's going on, especially the one that uh, we just talked about uh, that was published yesterday. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.